You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, uh, early on in my marriage with Christy, we found ourselves in a position where we needed to replace a car, but we weren't ready for a new car payment. And so I went on a quest to find my dream clunker. Not a dream car, mind you. There's a big difference between the dream car and the dream clunker, but I knew I couldn't put a lot of money into this car, but it might as well still be awesome, right? So I went on a quest to find my dream clunker, and baby, I found it. I found one day, just driving by the Walmart parking lot, a 1986 Chevy S10 with an extended bed on it, and I thought, that's the one. There was like in chalk, like one of those like chalk signs, like call this number, and I called the number. The guy was asking $1,000 for I talked him down to 800 and then after I bought it, I found three rolls of quarters under the seat. So about $770, I got my dream clunker. Now, this was, uh, this was a car I was super excited about, but I remember the first time, like, I, I rode, like, Christy rode in it with me. Like, she'd not seen it yet. She's like, you buy it. You take charge of that. I remember her riding in the seat next to me and me yelling at her because the, the muffler was so loud. So at that point, I'd be like, isn't this awesome? And then I look over, and Christy has not let her back touch the seat of the truck because it is that dirty. Like, she was just worried of how filthy it was. I got it cleaned up. You know, that's when I found the quarters. Uh, There were several issues with this car. One of my hopes in buying an older truck was that I could learn to work on it. I thought if it's an older vehicle, you know, maybe I can learn how to work on it. The problem is, is that just owning an older vehicle doesn't give you the ability to work on that vehicle or the tools or any of that. So there were several problems with this truck. The windshield wipers didn't work. Uh, At first, the high beams didn't work. The uh, gas gauge, like that was just a joke. Uh, And when you were driving it, you'd be going down the highway. Like once you started it, you could actually take the keys out of the ignition. And it would just keep running, which was my favorite thing to do. If somebody's riding with me in the truck, I'd pull them out and be like, oh, no, because the truck would just keep going. So I had this truck for some time and um, had several problems with it, you know, worked on it here and there. Uh, But the, the trickiest part about owning this truck is in the state we were living, West Virginia, there is a vehicle inspection that you have to complete every year. And they determine whether or not your vehicle is roadworthy. And if it's not roadworthy, they'll put a rejection sticker on it, which is like a time time bomb saying like you have to get these problems in your cars fixed and have it re-inspected within this many days or you can no longer drive this car. If you're pulled over with a rejection sticker, it's bad news. If you pass it, which most people like they didn't even think twice when they took their cars for the inspection, you'd get another sticker that said this, this car is roadworthy, you're fine to go along. Well, I learned early on that there was one particular mechanic that maybe was less than thorough with his inspection. So that's where I took my truck, and there was usually no problem. And so first year I did that, it was fine. Second year I owned this truck, it was fine. But then the third time I took it in for inspection, something happened. I don't remember why, but I had to go to a different mechanic. So when I went to pick my truck up from this mechanic, he comes to me and he's like, we need to talk. I'm like, oh, that's never good. And he's like, I didn't put a rejection sticker on your truck but I can't pass it. And I'm like, well, 
what's the deal? And he pointed to the back window of the truck, which is a sliding window, or it was supposed to be a sliding window. What it really was was just a piece of plexiglass, which I'd never had any problems with. You know, nobody's really trying to, like, break in this truck anyways. I wasn't so worried about security. And it slid open fine, but he's like, I can't pass it because it's not, you know, up to factory standards. I was like, all right. So I thought, well, this is no problem. I'll just take it to the mechanic I usually take it to, who usually passes it. And so I go in, I take my truck there, and I'm thinking, like, you know, my big biggest problem here is this piece of plexiglass. And I go and I wait in the little waiting area. You know how like these gas station mechanics always have that one waiting area? And for whatever reason, you're always, the chairs are old like car seats. And so that was me, like I'm sitting in an old torn out car seat just waiting and like tapping my foot. It's almost like I'd had like, you know, one of those doctor's appointments where you're like waiting afterwards, like the doctor wants to talk to you. You're like, oh, it's never good. The mechanic comes back and he's like, let me, let me take you and show you something. I'm like, oh no. And he's still got my truck up on the lift. So he starts taking me around. He starts pointing to things that were problems I didn't even know about. And I'm thinking, like, buddy, you don't even know, like, about the, how you can pull the keys out and all that stuff. But he starts talking about, like, this right here is an issue. He's saying, like, this whirly gig or this whatever piece that I don't know what these things even are. And he's like, these are all issues. And then he goes, and you see that right there? He's like, that's your, your fuel line. I think it was a fuel line, something like that. He's like, that's busted. That's messed up. He's like, if you're going down the road and you were, this truck were to create some kind of spark, which with this vehicle is quite likely, he's like, you'd just blow up and you'd be dead. And anybody near you would be dead also. And he's like, so I had to put the rejection sticker on it. And then I looked at my truck and there, sure enough, the rejection sticker is on my truck. I went into that appointment thinking my biggest problem was a piece of plexiglass. And I came out finding that my real biggest problem is that my truck could explode. So we got the rejection sticker. Not long before that, we found out anyways that we were about to have our first child. And, you know, this was one of those old bench seat trucks. And I'm like, I don't think I could put a baby seat in the front anyways. Now it's rejected. We had to finally sell that truck. And I sold it for $900. So in the end, I made a little bit of profit. Uh, probably put, you know, $5,000 into it in the meantime. But that's all details. We don't need to worry about that. I tell you that story because I think it relates to the story we're reading this morning when we get to Mark chapter 2. Now, last week, if you were with us in Mark chapter 1, we saw Jesus do a ton of things. One that I want to zoom in on is there's this one moment where Jesus goes to the, the house of Peter, one of his disciples, and there Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. But then after he does this, people from all over the city start coming into Peter's house. And I just imagine the scene where like there's this line on one side of the house of all the sick people that have heard this guy can heal people. And they're there and it's probably a sad line. Like there's people that can't walk or have other ailments. Who knows like what that line is like going into the house. But inside that house, they meet the healer. And it says that Jesus healed every one of them that was brought to them. So then I like to imagine the line that's going out of the house. The people that are dancing for the first time, the people that are seeing the sunset for the first time, the celebration coming out of the house versus the sad people going into it. And what changed in the middle is that they met Jesus. And this little verse, this little section of Mark chapter one says that Jesus did this all night. And then early in the morning, he slipped away. And people didn't even know where he was. After he'd healed everybody, he goes off to a solitary place to pray. And that morning, even the disciples are looking for him. They're like, we don't know where Jesus is. When they finally catch up to him, Jesus says, hey, let's go to the next towns. 
So they leave that town, which was Capernaum, and then they go to the other towns in the surrounding area of Galilee, and some other stuff happens, and then we get to chapter 2, and it says that Jesus is back in Capernaum. So some days have passed, and now he's coming back into town where he did all of these miracles, and we're going to pick up right there in Mark chapter 2 with verse 1. It says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now, likely, most scholars think that he's probably gone back to Peter's house. When it says that he's at home, it seems like maybe Peter's house had become sort of like a launching point for their ministry. So he's come back to Peter's house, and he starts teaching there, and the word spreads again that this healer is back. And so crowds gather in at the house. They start pushing in to Peter's house. Like at one point, you wonder if Peter's like, oh, hey, like make yourself at home right here on the couch. And then there's no more couch room left. Now people are sitting on the floor. Like now people are standing in the doors. It has gotten crowded. People are standing outside of the house now. People want to get in to see this guy that they heard healed so many other people. And so Jesus is teaching and this crowd gathers. But then meanwhile, across town, there's this paralyzed guy. And we hear about this guy later on in the story, but we've got a guy who's paralyzed. We don't know for how long. We don't know what his issue was, but we know that he's paralyzed. Now, my question is, why is this guy paralyzed? Not like what happened to him. My question maybe more is, why is this guy still paralyzed? Because we know that last week, Jesus was in town, the whole city gathered, and he healed everybody that came there. But then here's this guy who's paralyzed. So for whatever reason, this guy missed it when Jesus was in town. We don't know if maybe like he didn't hear about it until it was too late. We don't know if maybe like he, he, had, he couldn't get there, you know, like maybe he started trying, but he's paralyzed. And so he couldn't get to where the healer was, or maybe somebody told him about it. And he's like, Psh, do you know how many doctors I've tried? I'm not going to get my hopes up one more time. Like, I don't believe this guy is going to do what you say he can do. And so the paralyzed guy just stayed at home. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, Jesus was in his town healing a few days ago, and he didn't get healed. Now, imagine what it would feel like to be a paralyzed guy the day after the healer leaves town. I mean, you would just be so bummed out. You'd be kicking yourself if not for the being paralyzed, right? Like this guy, just imagine that idea. You have missed it. You know other people that have had issues and they're coming to you saying, I got healed. It would feel awful to be a paralyzed person the day after the healer leaves town. Now, I don't know who it would feel worse to be, to be that guy or the guy that takes care of the paralyzed guy. Because back in those days, it was rare for anybody to live on their own, but especially you're not going to find a person who's paralyzed living by themselves. Somebody had to help them get their food. Somebody had to help them get clean, help them get to the bathroom. There are other people in this guy's life that are taking care of him. Who do you think it felt worse to be, the paralyzed guy or the people taking care of the paralyzed guy the day after the healer leaves town? And what are their reasons for why they weren't able to get their friend or their family member to where this healer was? Maybe they didn't hear about it in time. Maybe they didn't believe it. Maybe they tried, but they couldn't get it done for whatever reason. We have this scenario where we've got a paralyzed guy and the people with him, and they weren't able to make it to the healer. Now, I think this kind of 
opens up some questions to us. If we can step out of the story for a minute and begin applying it to ourselves. And the question I want to ask is, what is it that prevents you from getting to the healer? What is it that stops you from getting to where Jesus is? Could you say that, well, I haven't heard it? I mean, that probably isn't true for most of us because we're sitting here in church. Could it be an issue of time? Like, I was going to try and get there, and then all this other stuff happened, and the next thing I knew, I just wasn't able to get to Jesus. Other stuff crowded it out. Or is it an issue of belief? I mean, I didn't really believe what they were saying about Jesus. I've never really bought into this whole church thing. You know, maybe I just kind of come with the family because they want me to go, but I've never bought into it. What is it that keeps you away from Jesus? And then another question is, what is it that keeps the people around you from getting to Jesus? If we try and put ourselves in the shoes of the people taking care of the paralyzed guy, what is it that keeps the people around us from getting to Jesus? Is it because they don't believe? Well, in that case, maybe we need to tell them. Is it because they've seen like other things happening? They're just not sure about this whole Jesus thing, but here we are in their lives. Shouldn't we be the ones guiding them? Have they not heard? Is it that they haven't heard that there's this guy that can heal them, that can fix their problems, that can give them life after death? Again, that responsibility would be on us. Or even worse, is it because of us that they haven't made it to Jesus? Is it possible that the way we have lived our lives around other people, they see us, they know we're associated with church, and they decide that is not what I want to be a part of? What is it that keeps us from getting to Jesus? More importantly, what is it that keeps the people around us from getting to Jesus? As the story continues in verse 3, it says this right here. I love this part. It starts just getting hilarious. It says, And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. So we've got a paralyzed guy and then four guys. We don't know who they are. Maybe they're brothers, cousins, family members, just friends. Maybe they're neighbors, but they've brought this paralyzed guy. They decided they're not making the same mistake twice. That if this guy that can heal is back in town, they're going to do whatever they can to get to where he is. Maybe in the meantime, they've been trying to track him down. Like, we, he was here. We heard he went to these other cities. Like, where is he? When he's back in town, they're like, we're going right now. And so a crowd has already gathered, but they're a little slower because they're carrying this guy. And so these men come to Jesus. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, in these days, most of the houses were made with like kind of flat roofs. And there would be often like a staircase on the outside of the house that could get you to the top of the roof. And these roofs would be made with like beams, you know, wooden beams probably or like branches that go across. And then they would make mud tiles. They'd lay out mud and let it harden. And they'd make mud tiles and put that across these beams. And maybe there's some straw mixed in there too. And that's how they would get a roof. And so it wouldn't be like all that hard. You're not like pulling across shingles and getting through like insulation and all that stuff. They're just probably moving some of these tiles across. But I would have loved to have been in the house while this is happening, right? Like Jesus is teaching and people are all standing and trying to listen, but then you hear this like scratching up above. And at first you don't think much about it. You're like birds, like what is that? And then the scratching gets louder and then like stuff starts falling down. And then next thing you know, like you just like sunlight up, like floods into the room. You look up and there's these four guys just peering down into the building. I wonder the whole time, like, what was Jesus, his reaction to this? Like, is he trying to teach? And he's like, got to start talking louder because there's, like, is he getting irritated or is he amused? I can only imagine Jesus probably starting to, like, smile a little bit with all of this happening, maybe just thinking it's hilarious, but this is going on. 
I'd really love to see Peter's face, right? Like the guy that owns the house, like he, he, like probably you'd be a little irritated, right? Like somebody had to make that roof. Peter probably worked on that. Like now they're tearing it apart, but you can't act like you're irritated, right? Because like, oh, he's, he's paralyzed. Like, oh, my roof. Like, like later on, I wonder, like Peter's got to be, somebody's repairing that roof and probably just wondering like, where's that guy with the new legs? Like who, he got new legs. I'll tell you how you can use them. You can climb up here, help me repair my roof. What we know is that these guys start lowering their friend through the ceiling. And I'd love to see even this, like how are they doing it? Like, have they like fashioned a chair or is he on a stretcher like going down? Like, does the stretcher stay level the whole time? Like, or is that there that moment where like it slips a little bit and everybody in the crowd is like, oh, like about to catch the guy because they're worried he's going to fall. Like, it would just be chaos in this house as this is going on. But that's how desperate these people were to get to Jesus because they knew that Jesus could take care of their problem. And so the guy gets lowered down. I imagine that eventually like the ruckus kind of dies down and everybody is quiet wondering, what would Jesus do? We heard that he healed all these other people. Are we gonna see him heal this guy? And so then verse five, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, which is huge right there, not just the faith of the one guy, not just the faith of the guy that has the problem that needs to be healed, but the faith of the people that brought him to him. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Which I think is a little bit strange. I wonder if the guy on the mat is like, wait, what? My, my sins are forgiven? I don't know if you noticed, uh, these bad boys aren't doing much for me. Like, I came to see you because my legs here are the problem. They came, they brought this guy because he couldn't walk. That was his problem, what he thought was his biggest problem. Jesus looks down at him. He doesn't talk about what this guy thinks is his biggest problem, but instead he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And we realize here that maybe what this guy thought was his biggest problem, his legs, was not actually his biggest problem. But instead, his biggest problem all along was his sin. This guy was going into a mechanic thinking he had a broken plexiglass window when in reality his truck could explode and he would die. Often we fall into this where we get focused in on one problem and think this is my biggest problem and we neglect the fact that all of us share another biggest problem. The biggest problem we all share is the problem of our sin. This was true for the guy on the mat. This is true for you and for I. All of us share the same biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our sin. It's not always what we see on the outside, what might make our life feel more complicated. It's what we can't see on the inside, the problem we have of our sin, which has messed up our soul, which is preventing us from getting close to our creator, which is preventing us from having eternal life with the one who cannot be around our sin. So Jesus looks at this guy who thinks he has one problem and he says, your sins are forgiven. He fixes his other problem. And I think we gotta just stop and, and recognize that we have a biggest problem of sin. Our biggest problem is sin. It's not the coronavirus, it's sin. It's not our finances or our credit score. Our biggest problem is our sin. It's not who you are dating or going to date, how your marriage is going, or if you'll ever have a marriage. For our younger people, it's not what school are you going to get into, what job will you have after that school. All the things we often focus on as our biggest problem are not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is sin. 
Because the reality is that the coronavirus can't send us to hell. Getting into a less than desirable school isn't going to send us to hell. Not having a relationship with a person or or not dating a person or being single or married or whatever it is, that's not what determines whether or not we go to hell. Our sin is what determines that. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 tells us this, 1.8 and 9. Paul says, those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's not something we like to focus on because it can feel scary, it can feel uncomfortable, and I I never want to like have those sermons where people leave scared. Like, I just don't think that's a, a good way to go about it, but the reality is that we have a problem of sin, and if sin is in our lives... We can't have a relationship with Jesus, and that means hell for us. It's the same thing like with my kids. I'm not going to not tell my kids to not go play in the street because I'm worried they might be scared. I'm not going to say like, well, I don't want them to grow up like afraid in life. So I just never told them not to play in the street. No, I got to tell them that because there's danger for them in the street, right? They can't be playing in the street. So we have to focus in a little bit on the fact that we have sin in our lives. It's our biggest problem because sin can lead to hell. But we saw in this story that this guy had his sin problem fixed by Jesus. We saw in the story that our biggest problem can be solved by Jesus. So we have to change our perspective and understand what is my biggest problem in life? And then look and say, but where am I focusing? Am I focusing more on my biggest problem and solving that or the other problems in my life? Jesus tells a, a parable in Luke about this guy. He, he's known as the rich fool. And this guy has a really good crop one year. And you get the feeling that this guy is just worried about his life on this earth, about the things that he can see, the problems that many of us worry about. What am I going to do in retirement? What happens to all my, my funds? Like, how can I handle these things? How can I have a good life for myself? He's worried about that side of things, what he can see. And one year he has a really good crop. And with all of his extra crops, he's like, what am I going to do with all this excess? I have more than I could even need. Well, so he tears down his old, smaller barns and he builds bigger barns because he's been so focused on this problem that he can see of providing for himself, having security here on earth. But the parable tells us that that night he died. In Luke 12, 20, it says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This guy had focused on the wrong problems and he neglected his biggest problem, which was his sin. And that night when he died, his other stuff didn't save him. The problems that he focused on, they couldn't help him. And again, I think this is often true for us. We get focused on things that are big problems. I'm not trying to trivialize what we have going on, what you're dealing with right now. I'm not saying your problems aren't problems. I'm just saying it's not your biggest issue in life. Our biggest issue is that if we have sin in our lives that's not forgiven, we cannot go into eternity with Jesus. And so we often fix on the, we we often get reactive to these problems rather than proactive. We often won't even address the sin issue in our lives until that becomes a bigger issue, an issue that we can see. Let me tell you kind of what I mean. In in my time as a youth pastor, I've done this now for about 15 years in full-time youth ministry, and, and I hate to say it, but I've had the majority of meetings that I have with parents when an issue comes up with their student, they're almost always reactive meetings rather than proactive meetings. We don't begin addressing our biggest problem of sin in our life until that has turned into another issue. 
And so it's not usually like when a kid enters sixth grade that a parent comes and says, hey, I want to make sure like I'm just helping lead them spiritually. I'm helping them, you know, develop a good relationship with Jesus. Most of the time I'm having, having meetings with parents that have 11th graders or 12th graders, and they're saying things like, we're just not sure that she's eating right. Or we found this on his phone, and now we don't know what to do. Or these substances here, this group that he's hanging out with, like, this has become a problem. And as I talk with these parents about how we can go through these things, you know, you begin to realize, like, the problem all along was sin. Sin was the biggest problem. And often in these meetings, I'll hear these parents just kind of express regret that maybe they didn't focus enough on those problems as their kid was growing up. Maybe they focused too much on the other things that we're convinced are our biggest problems, like grades and colleges and sports and all the extracurricular stuff, maybe that took too much of our attention and we didn't put enough attention into our spiritual growth. And so we have to look, man, what are my priorities? How have my problems determined those priorities and which of them are really problems? That should be my biggest priority. And so we get back to the scene where Jesus heals this guy of his sin. He thought he had one problem, but Jesus takes care of his biggest problem, his sin. And the story picks up in verse 6. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And he rose immediately and picked up his bed. Wait, I, I skipped this part, didn't I? Either way, which is easier to say the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So he came in with one problem. Jesus fixes another problem. But then in the end, Jesus fixes his original problem. And the Pharisees, the scribes, they're the religious people. They see this, and in their minds, like, they don't even speak against Jesus yet, but they're thinking, they're like, this guy's committing blasphemy. And they're not wrong, because what Jesus is doing by saying your sins are forgiving is claiming to be God. And they think that. They're like, who can forgive sins but God? And again, they're not wrong. Only God can do that. And so here, as Jesus forgives this guy's sins, he is claiming to be, he's positioning himself as God which these religious leaders was just unheard of. And so if we look at what they're thinking in this story, man, they maybe are aware of the biggest problem we all share of sin in their lives. But they think they've got that problem figured out. They think they've figured it out by following all the laws, by obeying all the rules. They think they're the solution to their biggest problem. And that this other guy coming in, talking all big and bad, like what does he know? But what they miss is that Jesus is the solution to their problem. Not their behavior, not their religious rules, but Jesus is the solution to their sin. And so again, just to prove that Jesus can forgive sin, that Jesus is God, not only does he forgive the guy's sins, he tells him to get up and walk. And the guy gets up, he takes his mat out of there, and he walks. So this morning, I don't know how like you hear this. I don't know how you respond to this, but this morning you came in thinking you had your problems, right? And you're like, ah, I got this thing going on, I got that thing. Like, we all did that coming in this morning. Like, this was my list of issues I'm dealing with. And then I'm gonna stand up here and be like, hey, but that's not even your biggest problem, which is kind of discouraging, right? Like, I just said, like, hey, your problems aren't even problems. There's a bigger problem you have to worry about. And now you're even more, like, anxious. You're sitting there like, ah, I got other stuff to worry about. I already had a full plate. 
Here's how I hope you really feel, is that hearing about your biggest problem, I hope you don't just hear about it, but you realize there's a solution for it. Now, you're not realizing, hopefully, for the first time that sin in your life or disobedience to God is your biggest problem because that results in eternity away from God and hell. I hope you're not just hearing that for the first time, but that you do realize with this that Jesus fixed that problem, that on the cross, Jesus fixed our problem of sin. And so now our other problems, they don't seem as much like problems, do they? Because my biggest problem, my real problem, Jesus handled that. These other problems, they're not as big of a deal now. Because even if this thing kills me, whatever this problem is that I have on earth, even if it takes my life, well, my life is now with Jesus because he's taken care of my sin problem. Because he died on the cross for my sins. Because I gave up my life and my sins to him. Now, my biggest problem isn't even a problem anymore. So then the question is, do I have any problems left? And also note that if Jesus can handle your biggest problem, I think he can probably handle the smaller ones as well. It may not be the way that we imagine it, it may not be the way we want it, but Jesus can handle your problems. And only Jesus can handle your problems. We gotta stop wearing ourselves out to be the ones that fixing, fixing all of our own problems. The Bible tells us this in Acts 4.12. Peter's talking to people. And he says, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus that we can be saved. So we got to stop running around trying to heal our own legs. We got to stop running around trying to fix our own problems and know that Jesus is the only one that can fix our sin, our biggest problem. And he did it at the expense of his life on the cross. Why? because of his great love for us. Because he wasn't content with sitting there seeing us with all of these problems. One problem in particular that was gonna send us away from him. And so Jesus came down to where we are and he fixed our biggest problem. And so this morning, I just wanna end on some, some reflection questions, some things just for us to, to go home with or to go into communion with, to sing this last song with. I want us to think about these last questions. What are the problems that you are focused on the most? What are the things clouding you out this morning? What are the things that make it so that you can't see what else is happening in your life? What are the biggest problems that you're focused on? And are they actually your biggest problem? Have you resolved, this would be our second question, have you resolved that biggest problem? Have you given your sins up to Jesus, asking for his forgiveness in your life? Have you allowed Jesus to heal you of your sin, your biggest problem? And if not, what is keeping you from Jesus? What is keeping you from, from being the paralytic that goes to Jesus? You don't want to end up being the paralyzed guy the day after the healer leaves town. What's keeping you from taking those problems to Jesus? And beyond that, what might be keeping the people around you from seeing their biggest problem and taking their problems to Jesus? Because we know that because Jesus died on the cross for us, our biggest problem is no longer a problem. Instead of dying and experiencing separation from God for eternity in hell, we get to go to be with him in eternity forever. And all of that is made possible for us because of the cross. So this morning, as we focus on those questions, I'm gonna invite you to these tables around the room, to these tables that represent the solving of our biggest problem in life, that represent the fact that Jesus died for us on the cross, his body was broken, 
So there's little wafers to, to be bread for us this morning to see that Jesus' body was broken for us. There's juice that represents his blood, which was poured out. The death that we should have died, the death that our sin deserves, Jesus stood in our place and fixed our problem at his own pain, at his own cost, at no cost to us. And so this morning, I'm gonna invite you as we sing to find your way to a communion table and recognize that Jesus solved your problems. So let's go to him with that in mind. Let me pray. God, I pray this morning that we would know what our biggest issue in life is, that the other things we may be crowded in by, God, that they just begin to pale in comparison with the fact that without you in our lives, without a relationship with you, we need help. But God, we thank you that you provided a way for us to have a relationship with you, to have our sins forgiven by sending your son to die on the cross. So I pray this morning, as we go to the communion table, we would see what our true problems are and know that you have solved our biggest problem. And I pray, God, as we move throughout our week this week, that you'd help us to see why the people around us might not be going to you in ways that we can lead them just as the friends of that paralyzed man led him to you. God, let us lead the people in our lives to you. So God, we thank you that you are our problem solver and that you did that on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.